Good morning. Our scripture this morning is Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 17. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is the word of our Lord. You can be seated. Good morning. You guys doing well? Outstanding. Good to have you with us. Welcome to Desert Breeze Community Church. Colossians is our current teaching series. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Colossians chapter 3. We're looking at verses 12 through 17. Let me begin with a story here. A husband and wife were having a quarrel over the breakfast table. The quarrel remained unfinished as it was time to get to work. The wife, having trouble with the zipper on her dress, asked for assistance. In a huff, the husband freed the zipper and then angrily ran it up and down rapidly several times, then left. That afternoon, when the wife returned from work, There was a car in the driveway with a man lying on his back underneath the car, except for his lower half. Remembering the breakfast incident, she went over, grasped the zipper on his fly, and zipped it down and up several times and stomped into the house. There, to her surprise, sat her husband drinking coffee. In great embarrassment, she explained to her husband what she had done. He rushed outside to find his neighbor out cold, When the wife had grasped his zipper, he had reflexively tried to sit up and knocked himself out. We're going to talk about healthy relationships this this weekend is what we're talking about. Grab your sermon notes here. Relationships are only as healthy as the individuals that make up those relationships. You guys agree with that? So those relationships are only as healthy as the individuals that make up those relationships. Therefore, individual wholeness is the key to healthy relationships. In other words, you need to focus on you. Don't focus on others, focus on you. Get healthy. Individual wholeness is about finding your completeness, wholeness, and holiness in Christ. Relationships don't put you in conflict with people as much as they put you in conflict with your own sinful nature. When Nancy and I were first married, I thought, if this gal could just get her act together, we could have really a great marriage relationship. And then I got over myself and realized I was trying to take the speck out of her eye when I had a telephone pole in my eye. That's what Jesus said to his disciples, and that's often the way it is. And when I kind of got over myself and I realized that pride tends to help you to not be able to see your own problems. The more pride you have, the less you can see in yourself. And, and, but when the Lord began to humble me and work in my life, I realized it was actually more about me than it was her. I probably certainly had more issues than she had. Hey, listen, she had her issues, okay? I just want you guys to know that. But I had to work on me. 
My preoccupation was her to kind of blame everything on her. But when I started working on me, then I was able to become a facilitator in our relationship of, of health and wholeness because then I was able to respond to her appropriately. And, and so that's what we're talking about here. And there's three questions I think that this text helps us to answer. This is kind of a, kind of a healthy relationship seminar. So buckle your seatbelts because this is where we're headed. Three questions. What is individual wholeness? We're going to spend a little more time on that. And then we'll work to what are the characteristics of healthy relationships. You probably, as we were reading the text, you saw kind of a list there. We'll look at that list. and We'll spend uh, some time on that. And then we'll finish up by talking about what is the goal of healthy relationships. We won't spend much time on that. We'll just kind of race through that. So when we get to the end, you'll think, ah, we're running out of time. We still have a lot of fill in the blanks. Don't worry. We'll get there, okay? We'll get, it, we'll get it knocked out, but we'll race through those last ones, those last four pretty quickly. And then you can study that on your own. So what is individual wholeness? I want you to see two quotes that are on your notes and will also be up on the screen behind me. These two quotes are from doctors, Les and Leslie Parrott, their book on real relationships. I've modified the quotes a bit as you will see with the parentheses. So here's the first quote. You probably have heard me use this many times before. It's a really important quote. If you try to find intimacy with another person before achieving a sense of identity on your own in Christ, all of your relationships will become an effort to complete yourself. Make sense? I mean, it makes, makes a whole lot of sense. I wish I would have had this before I got married, okay? And, uh, and I just, I needed this. You guys need this. We all need to understand this. Here's the next quote. If we have not achieved a solid sense of who we are, on our own in Christ, we are destined to believe one of two lies guaranteed to sabotage all of our relationships. Here's the first lie. I need this person to be complete. I need this person to be complete. Second lie. If this person needs me, I'll be complete. They kind of work kind of both hand in hand in some ways, but these are the two sides of the same coin called codependency or relational idolatry. Now let me help you to understand why these uh, are lies and are not very helpful. Is expecting another person to complete you will cause you to either become a chameleon or compliant doing all you can to win their approval. In other words, your relationship from your side of the equation will be all love and no truth, very little truth. Or you'll swing to the other extreme. You'll be very demanding, as opposed to being a, a chameleon and compliant, you'll be demanding and controlling. And you will crush them under the weight of your unrealistic expectations. You'll crush that relationship under the weight of your unrealistic expectations. You'll be all truth, all truth, and very little love. Very little of it. it. It creates this imbalance. Either way, you can offer them, either way, all you can offer them is neediness. And, and it's, it's self-centeredness. Self-centeredness makes the relationship more about you. It makes the relationship a means to an end, to fill you up, to make you happy. It makes it all about you, and that's extremely unhealthy. Now, let me ask you this question. What happens when a compliant man meets a controlling woman? They get married. That's what happens. 
What happens when a compliant woman meets a controlling man? They get married. It's a, it's a marriage made in hell. Now, we, I mean, seriously, it, it really is. And so we all talk about, oh, opposites attract. Yeah, that's very dysfunctional. It's extremely dysfunctional. So, so I was very controlling. My wife was very compliant. And that created problems in the marriage relationship. We were opposite in unhealthy ways. It's like hand in glove. It was just dysfunctional. So what I had to do is stop being so controlling, and she needed to stop being so compliant. And it took some time to work through all those details. It's really hard. And, and so it created this dysfunction. Now, this is what you need to know. It's not anyone else's job to make you whole. It's not anyone else's job to make you whole. People in your life are meant to share your life, not to be your life. They're to share your life, not to be your life. Our completeness can only come from Christ. Now, let me bring you up to speed where we've been in this uh, Colossians series. Man, I've absolutely loved this series since the beginning of the year. We've been working our way through Colossians. It's, it's one of the many ways we love studying the Bible here. And, and so what we've learned so far, it's all about finding our completeness in Christ. We call it the preeminence of Christ. And so chapter 1, we have the preeminence of Christ declared, our our completeness in Christ declared. Chapter 2, the, our completeness in Christ defended. And then last weekend, we were heading into chapters 3 now and 4, and that's Christ's preeminence or our completeness in Christ demonstrated through our lives. We talked a lot about our identity and idolatry last weekend to kind of help to see how life change happens from the inside out in our lives. And now we move into relationships. What, is, what are healthy relationships? I mean, I've been researching this, looking at this my whole life because I, I really believe that we as Christians should emulate, demonstrate, put on display healthy relationships. And so we've got to understand what, it, what healthy relationships are. And so what is individual wholeness? It starts with individual wholeness. We've got to focus on ourselves. And verse 12, Paul, as he always does, he tells us, put on then, he's going to go through this list of what our conduct should look like, but he, he starts by mentioning our character. This is how Paul always teaches. He says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. So he's, what is he doing? He's showing us that our character always comes from our, I'm sorry, our conduct always comes from our character, character meaning our identity, our wholeness in Christ. And so he gives us, there's four words, or actually one, two, three, four, five words, but God's chosen ones. That's the first fill in the blank. So what is individual wholeness? It is belonging to God. I get that from verse 12a, as God's chosen ones. So the reason why I said that is because if you don't like your conduct, you've got to get back to your character, and getting back to your character is understanding your identity in Christ. It's understanding and getting wholeness in Christ. And, and that, then that begins to change your conduct. And so we belong to God because he created us, but we rebelled against God. We rebelled against him, said, we don't, we don't want to belong to you anymore. We can figure this out on our own. That spiritual alienation left us psychologically alienated internally. But God, in his love, sent his son on a rescue mission to redeem us, restore us, and reconcile us back to, to himself. And so we belong to God because he created us, but also because he redeemed us. 
Now, I hate to break the news to you, but there's only two teams on this, uh, on this, in this world, on this planet. Team God and Team Darkness, Satan, the God of this world. The Bible is pretty clear. You're either on God's team or you're on the other team, and the other team is not a good team, okay? But you're born in on the other team. You're born into this world, into sin, the Bible says. We're sinners by nature and by choice. We're part of Satan's team. We, we take on the values of this world. We have a sinful nature. We're sinners by nature and by choice. But, but God has redeemed us and rescued us through Jesus Christ. He sent his son on a rescue mission to redeem us. We are blood-bought. So he created us. We belong to him because he created us. But he also redeemed us. And so how do I get from the bad team over to the good team, so to speak? How do I get from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light? Ephesians 1, 4, uh, verse 4 and 13 tells us how we do that. It tells us that we are, we are chosen in Christ. And then in verse 13, it tells us how we're chosen in Christ. We become God's chosen ones by hearing the gospel and believing in Jesus. And so unless you commit your life to Christ and his finished work on the cross, you can't be on, the, uh, on his team. And that's how we become on his team. But this is what you're going to discover in your heart, is that every one of us, we all have a longing for belonging that was placed within us that, that only God can fill, only God can satisfy. We have this longing for belonging, and there is no identity more inclusive, unshakable, freeing, and satisfying than belonging to God. In fact, the Bible uses a lot of this identity language in, for instance, 1 Peter 2, 9 through 10. This is what it says. It's talking about those of us that have put our faith in Jesus Christ. It says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Oh, my goodness. Those those identity statements for us as believers are, are unbelievably secure and significant beyond our wildest dreams. And then he says, a people for his own possession. So the Bible uses language like, that, like, we are his people, he is our God. It'd be like me saying, that's my girl, that's my Nancy, that's, she's my wife, I'm her husband. And, and so that identity language like that is just saying it speaks of intimacy, it speaks of relationship. And so we belong to him, we have relationship with him, we have intimacy with God, we know God, our identity comes from God. It's really important. And he says, a, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Now, here's what's fascinating about belonging to God, and this is really important uh, for our relationships horizontally. By me belonging to God, as I, as I walk with him and get to know him and, and find my identity in him, it begins to heal all of my past relational hurts. I don't need to do a show of hands here of how many have been hurt by past relationships. Everybody on the planet has been hurt by past relationships. And here's the crazy thing about this, that if you don't work through those hurts from past relationships... You're going to carry those hurts and that dysfunction into present and future relationships. And it will only get worse. Your relational problems get worse. It's called a homing instinct. So let's just say you're raised in a home, and in that home there are certainly um, unwritten rules and roles and ways of relating. And if it's dysfunctional, you wouldn't know that. This is just how you were raised. 
And you get hurt in those relationships. They don't go well. And so what happens? You, you get launched out into adulthood. And so you've got this dysfunction going on, but you don't know any better. And it's a homing instinct. And, and so what we do is we typically always go back to that which is most familiar to us, even if it's dysfunctional, until we come to God's word. And, then be, and, and, and it begins to reorder our understanding of what it means to have a healthy relationship. Oh, that wasn't healthy. That was, wow, that was pretty damaging, in fact. Oh, God, thank you that you bring healing to my life. And you reorder my life and help me in so many different ways. And so belonging to God can heal all past relational wounds. Do you, do you hear me? Because we all have them. And, and let me give you a case in point right here. Perfect example of this. This is David in Psalm 27. Now, when you think of relational wounds, what do you think would be the, the worst relational wound? I think the worst relational wound that you could ever receive it would be from, from a family member. Because they're the closest to you. But in particularly, how about mom and dad? You grew up in a home where dad didn't treat you right, maybe you were abused, or mom didn't treat you good. Well, listen to what David says in Psalm 27:10. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. What is he saying there? All that will be healed by him. And, and that's important. Belonging to God can heal all past relational wounds. And that's important for our wholeness so that we, we can bring a sense of wholeness into our relationships horizontally. So what we get vertically from God heals our past hurts so that we don't keep repeating the same broken cycle in, in our lives. So it starts there. So what is individual wholeness? It is belonging to God. Here's the next one. It's living my life wholly for God. He uses the word holy. So put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy, and, and so what does that word mean, holy? The word holiness comes from the English word wholeness. So any, anytime you think of holiness, think of wholeness. That's what God's heart is for us. And this holy, it is an attitude of heart in which you look at God and you say, my whole life is yours. Every part of my life is yours. Romans 12, 1 through 2, Paul finishes up 11 chapters of just talking about the grace and mercy and the beauty and the glory of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. And then he says, in light of that, how should we live our lives? So he's starting off with, this is our character, now here's our conduct. How should we conduct ourselves as a result of that, and this, and this is how he, he actually puts it. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And then he goes on to unpack that and say, well, this is what it looks like. He says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. In other words, this is an inside-out work. I mean, if you understand what he's done for you, oh, my goodness, this is going to make a difference in how you live out your life. It's almost as if he's saying, how do you come to terms with someone who has given his life wholly for you? Holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y. He gave his life wholly, completely, totally for you. How do you come to terms with that? By you living your life wholly, W-H-O-L-L-Y, wholly for him, every area of your life. You follow him, you love him, you enjoy him. You make sure your life is aligning up with his word because you know his word, he spoke that word to us out of his infinite wisdom and perfect love. He loves us. He has our best interest at heart. 
So a holy life is living your life more and more in alignment with, with all that God is and what he wants for us in our lives. The word integrity um, kind of goes along with this idea of holiness. Uh, integrity is the state of being whole and undivided. So he's just saying, man, I want you to be whole. I want you to be undivided when it comes to your mind, emotion, will, body, soul, spirit, time, talents, your treasure, your finances, how you do relationships, marriage, parenting, singleness, your sexuality, your college, your career, your leisure, your pleasures, your possessions, your politics, every aspect of your life, moving them more in alignment with what I, who I am and what I'm wanting for you because that's in your best interest. But it also speaks of the consistency between our external life and our internal life. Uh, our private life and our public life. So if I behave a certain way when I'm in public, when I'm around people, and I behave differently in, uh, in private, that shows inconsistency. It shows a lack of wholeness and holiness. Or like I said, our external life and our internal life. Uh, in other words, what you do and say doesn't match the person you are inside. In other words, and there's a tendency for all of us that when we're with people, it's called impression management. And so we want people to like us. We're afraid of rejection. And so we wear masks. Impression management. I, I want you to accept me. And so sometimes I'm not really reflecting all that's actually going on inside of me. Because I want you to like me. And so, so sometimes I'll, I'll convey in my behavior and my words, something different that's on the inside of me. And that's, that's an incongruency. It's, it's called the fragmented self. It's a, it's a lack of wholeness and holiness. And, and like I said, we're all guilty of impression management. We're consumed with, with, the, with the impression we're making on others. Here's, here, let, me, let me tell you a quick secret here, is that you'd worry less about what others thought of you if you realized how little they did. Really, they're probably not even thinking about you. In fact, they're so consumed with themselves. Typically, we all are. And so, but we do that. We wear masks, spirituality masks, and intellectual masks, and humor masks, and ignorance masks, and superficial conversation masks, and the list goes on. Why? To guard against rejection. Because inside of us, we, this is what we're thinking. If people knew the real me, they'd never accept me. And here's the crazy thing about that is that you can only be loved to the extent that you are known. And so when people say they love you and you're wearing a mask, all they can love is the mask. That love can't get deep into your heart. That's why you can be in a large crowd and still feel lonely because we do so much game playing and mask wearing. And so part of holiness is being able to take off the mask. Living my life holy for God is about integrity, the state of being whole and undivided. This is about taking off our mask and being authentic. I'm sure you remember this. You probably ought to be able to memorize this verse now or have it memorized in 2 Corinthians 11.3 where Paul says, I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning that somehow your hearts may be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Sincere is authentic. No mask. Real. Sincere and pure. Undivided. That speaks of holiness. So if I'm sincere and undivided in my relationship here truly, then I can be horizontally the same way. I can be more honest about what's going on inside of me. That's where healing begins to take place in my life and in other people's lives. Really, really important part of our, our wholeness. And, and so holiness is being so happy in Christ 
so happy in Christ, sin loses its appeal. I can begin to take off my mask. There's, there's this integrity that begins to take place in my life. I begin to live my life more and more in alignment with all that he has for me. I'm, I'm honest about my own personal struggles and difficulties. And I really believe that God commands holiness, 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16, knowing that when we follow his plan, we'll be happy. I think that happiness and holiness go hand in hand. So the more you follow his plan, the more you live a life holy for God, oh my goodness, the happiness goes through the roof because you're, you're honoring him and living for him and, and you're finding wholeness in him. I, this isn't on your notes, but let, so let me make this practical. So what does that mean to take off your mask? What does that mean? Let me give you just three quick things here. It's not on your notes, but I just, uh, I thought I'd share this with you. Living an authentic life means you give up trying to please everyone in your life. You give, up trying to, you give up trying to please everyone in your life. Why? Because you live to please God, and sometimes it might have, some people might not like that, and that's okay. You're okay with that. That's being authentic. Stop trying to please everybody, because you can't. But you can please God, and that's what matters, and that's what you do. Here's the next one. You have the courage to express what you truly value and joy and love, even if you think the people will disagree or disapprove. So you share your heart. You say, well, I don't like that. I like this. And you're okay with that. And you're okay with the pushback. Especially if you're around controlling people, they're going to try to convince you that what you're saying and, and what you feel and value is wrong. But that's okay. You're okay. You're authentic. You can deal with that. Here's the third thing. You acknowledge it openly when you get something wrong instead of, instead of excusing, spinning, deflecting, or blame shifting. You just say, yep, yeah, you know what? You're right. What I said was extremely hurtful. I'm sorry. That was very hateful. Please forgive me. Yep, I was wrong. See, that's authenticity. That's authenticity. So what is individual wholeness? It is belonging to God. It's living my life wholly for God. And then here's the third one. These are all interrelated, by the way. You need to have all of them. We're kind of working together. It's being deeply loved by God. He uses the word beloved. The word beloved, the Greek word is agape. It's unconditional love. And here's what's so cool about God's love, that there is nothing you can do to make him love you more, and there's nothing that you have done that would make him love you less than what he loves you right now and forever. That is crazy. I mean, it's just absolutely crazy. In fact, the gospel and understanding God's love destroys fearfulness because it tells us that nothing we do will exhaust God's love for us. In fact, the tail end, the last part of Romans 8, just basically says nothing can ever separate you from his love. No one is more madly in love with you than God. And, of course, the Bible gives us all different kinds of verses to help us to understand that. First John 4, 19, we love him because he first loved us preemptive love. Jeremiah 31, 3, I have loved you with an everlasting love, with unfailing love. I have drawn you to myself. Here's what's crazy is that God knows you to the bottom. He knows you. He knows what you did last night. He knows what you're thinking right now. He knows every detail about you, and he loves you to the skies. Psalm 103 says, as high as the heavens are above the earth, how great is his love for those who fear him. How high are the heavens above the earth? It's incalculable. It's high. I mean, it's, it's beyond measure. This is what the Bible is saying. It uses this, this language. It's beyond measure. Do you have any idea how much he loves you? It's beyond measure. I don't think that we often really live in the reality of that. I think we really struggle 
really understanding and embracing that. 1 John 3, 1, how great is the love the Father has lavished upon us that we should be called children of God. The only eyes, the only person in the universe that matters, loves you, adores you, gave his life for you, considers you more valuable than all the wealth in the world. It tells us in Psalm 63, 3, because your, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. You know what he's saying? It's better than life? There's nothing in life that comes close to his love. There's no pleasure, there's no other person that could love you, that can love you like God, and there's no greater pleasure in life than what you can find in God and intimacy with him. In fact, I was meditating on Hosea 6.6 last few weeks. It's really profound, and this is what he says. God is talking to the people, and he says, hey, 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 I don't want your sacrifices. I want your love. And what he's saying is, I don't want you going just in, you know, this insincere, going through the motions, coming to church, reading your Bible, praying and all that. No, no, no. Listen, that's a means to an end. I want your hearts. I want your love. I don't want your, you know, your offerings, your burnt offerings. I want you, I want intimacy with you. I want you to know me. You hear the heart of God? Why do we come to church? Why do we read our Bible? Why do we do all these things? This is a means to intimacy with him, to know him, to know his love, to experience him in our heart. And this is what I I can tell you from personal experience and what I see in other people's lives, is that I can tell when they're experiencing his love, they're living in the reality of his love, because their love for him grows like crazy, and their love for others grows like crazy. They have a ferocious love for God and a love for others. I, I get around people all the time and they tell me, oh, they love God. And, and yet if I don't see this, and I know that God loves me, but I only know that they're really experiencing that love when I see this ferocious love for God and love, love for others, ferocious love for others. Now, here's what's so crazy about his love. Is that God's love is so powerful that it frees you to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Matthew 5.44. That's supernatural. Because I've had a few enemies in my life. And I didn't want to love them. I certainly didn't want to pray for them. In fact, I wanted to choke them out. That's what I wanted to do. I wanted to put the hurt on them. And if you've never felt like that before, you're in denial. You are lying. Because I, I, I don't know, you know, when you have somebody that comes after you and attacks you and says mean and hurtful things to you, you know, I just like, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. But here's what's crazy about it. And, and sometimes it certainly takes time because I've had enemies before, and the first thing I wanted to do was just like, I'm going to go work them over verbally or whatever. I don't know. But, but, but in time, as God gets a hold of your heart, and you experience his love, it gives you this supernatural capacity. It even shocked me. I had a guy down the street that he created a lot of trouble for me and actually for this church in so many different ways. And God began to give me a love for him that was supernatural. I began to pray for him and began to reach out for, to him. It's amazing. I don't understand it, but it was supernatural. It's because I began to experience more of, more of God's love. And it made all the difference in the world. This individual wholeness in Christ not only heals past hurts, 
frees you to remove your mask and be honest about who you really are, living a life of integrity, but it also puts you in the driver's seat. This love that God gives us puts us in the driver's seat. What does that mean? It helps you to be proactive rather than reactive when people do mean and nasty things towards you. I talked about this. This was the study of the first, the second weekend of this year. I talked about this, and I, I made the distinction it's a kind of a metaphor, uh, kind of an analogy, actually. It's more of an analogy that being proactive is like a thermostat. Being reactive is more like a thermometer. Do you guys remember that? Okay, not very many of you do. Okay, more of you do. Okay. Okay, so, so a thermostat, thermostat kind of brings its environment. Thermometer kind of fluctuates with the environment. And we tend to be more reactive than proactive. But when your heart is filled up with God's love, it puts you in the driver's seat. You become proactive rather reactive. Let me give you a quick illustration of that. Romans 12, 21, it says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Reactive people tend to become like the evil that is being done to them. That's reaction. You're, you're mean to me, I'm going to be mean back to you. That's a reactive person. But proactive people that are so filled up with God's love can respond by overcoming evil with good. That's supernatural. That's amazing. That's what God wants to do in our lives. So what is individual wholeness? It is belonging to God, living my life wholly for God, and being deeply loved by God. Now, we move into what are the characteristics of healthy relationships? So that's really the foundation. And we could also ask the question, what are the characteristics of a whole person? This is what a whole person looks like. So if you don't look like this, you got to get back to your wholeness in Christ. So if your conduct is not consistent with what the Bible teaches, you get back to your character, your identity, your wholeness in Christ. There's, there's still work that needs to be done in your wholeness in Christ. Now, those guys, we had about 100 guys at the men's breakfast. Ray Garcia taught, did a phenomenal job, and he challenged the men to ask their spouse, their children, their friends how well they are doing in the relationship. Ray Garcia is a friend of mine from the fire department. He's a retired firefighter uh, from Phoenix Fire and great guy. And so he challenged us. And so I took on the challenge. And I would encourage you to take on the challenge. So this list that I'm going to give you, I was sitting at a local coffee shop here. I just finishing up my message. I had my laptop and I spun my laptop around. I said to my wife, I said, I want you to read through this list and then show me how well I'm doing on this list. And so she went through that list and said, you need improvement on three of these items. So she went through and told me three items that I needed improvement. So then after she was finished, I proceeded to tell her what areas she needed improvement on. <laughs> now she never asked me for that, but I was gonna show her anyway. Actually, I didn't do that. Because I wasn't there to, to try to like one-up her or trying to like, okay, well, let me show you now. She told me, she was very kind, she always is, she's very kind, very loving, and she showed me three different areas where I need improvement. And I thanked her and uh, moved on. And, and she never offered for me to look at her life in relationship. So, so pray for my wife. Okay, I'm, I'm just joking. I didn't do that to do, she didn't have to. She didn't have to do that. And I'm, I, I was very appreciative. Now, years ago, I wouldn't have been able to do that. I would have said, you think I'm bad? Well, 
let me point out to you how bad you are here. I mean, it was, it was, it was crazy. It was just, it was unhealthiness. But I received it, and so all I'm saying is that I'm the guy that's up here teaching. God's still working on me. I haven't arrived. I never will. You never will either until we get to heaven, okay? And you've got to be okay with that. And, we gotta, and, and one of the statements here is we've got to cut each other a lot of slack. And that's what I love about Desert Breeze. We're not enabling each other. We're going to hold each other accountable, but we just we understand. We just understand that we're, we're in process. And so that's cool. We're all in process together, and, and we want to progress in this relationship with God. And so let's go through this list. So what are the characteristics of healthy relationships? Compassionate hearts. King James Version uses the word bowels of mercy. Doesn't that sound weird? Bowels. You know what that means? Is that if you've ever received that phone call, that, that terrible crisis phone call, and what is, where does it hit you? Right in the gut. Ah, oh, you go, ah. Oh. We have friends that just lost a loved one. Ah, oh, and you begin to pray for them. That's what that means. Compassionate hearts. And this is deep affection that moves you to action. And this is really demonstrates God's heart. It tells us in 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 4, that, that, that praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion, same word here, Father of compassion and the God of all comfort who comforts us in our troubles so that we can in turn comfort others with the, with the comfort we have received from God. That's the idea here. It's beautiful. Absolutely amazing. In fact, throughout the gospel accounts, Jesus often moved with compassion. He, he was moved with compassion to take action, helping those in need. I gave you a couple of verses there of example. So compassionate hearts. Here's the next one is kindness. Moral goodness that enables a person to be friendly to others. Moral goodness that enables a person to be friendly to others or to be a friend to others. And here's what's crazy about God's kindness towards us. God's own kindness enables him to act as a friend even to those who are his enemies. Romans 2.4, this is what it says. It's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. We're his enemies. And he's, he's offering us friendship. He's offering us friendship while we're his enemies. And it's that kindness that leads us to repentance. So what does that mean? Romans 12.15 says this kindness rejoices with those who rejoice, weeps with those that weep. So true friends, double our joys and half our sorrows. Here's the next one. I think this is the hinge on which all of these others turn on. It's humility. Humility is an accurate view of self that eliminates an attitude of superiority or inferiority. Romans 12.3 says, Don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. It's, it's saying, have an accurate view of yourself. And I think one of the best definitions of humility is found in Philippians 2, 3 through 4. And he starts in verses 1 and 2, and he kind of lays out what our character should be as it relates to our identity and wholeness in Christ. So he kind of lays that out. And then he goes on to our conduct by saying, and do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility. So he's just saying the opposite of humility would be selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. And, and, and I like that it doesn't stop there because then he goes on. It's not just saying, hey, just focus on everybody else. But he says, let each of you look not only to his own interests, so, so you have interest too, nothing wrong with that, but also to the interest of others. 
So not only to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. So what is this selfish ambition? Selfish ambition is self-promotion, self-absorption, self-centeredness. And there are two sides to the same coin called pride. That's what it is. So the self-absorption, self-promotion, self-centeredness is pride. There's two, two sides of the same coin. It comes in the form of boasting and self-pity. Boasting is, is superiority complex. It says this, I deserve admiration because of how much I've accomplished. The flip side of that would be self-pity. And um, that's, an, that's an inferiority complex, and it says, I deserve admiration because of how much I've suffered. And so you've got a superiority complex, inferiority complex. It's all pride. It's all self-absorption, self-centeredness, self-promotion. The reason for that is the next word, conceit. The King James Version uses the word vainglory. And that sounds odd, but the word vain means empty, so you could say empty of glory. Glory is weight, significance, importance. So we're empty of weight, significance, importance. We, we feel like we don't matter. And the reason why we don't matter, and, and when we feel like we don't matter, we promote ourselves. We make life all about us. But the reason why we, don't, we feel like we don't matter is because it goes all the way back to the garden that we were meant to walk in the garden in the cool of the day to look into the face of our maker and to receive all the glory that we would ever need. But we rebelled against God, and that spiritual alienation left us psychologically alienated, proud, glory-hungry, desperate to promote ourselves. We make life all about us because we're empty inside. Pride is inner emptiness. Humility is an inner fullness that comes from God. And so, so typically proud people in trying to promote themselves, uh, proud or glory-hungry people are defensive, divisive, defiant, self-righteous, judgmental, unteachable, holier-than-thou, know-it-alls, unwilling to be honest about their own struggles, shortcomings, and sins. That's, that would be the sign of, of pride. When pride doesn't get its way, it acts ugly like that. We see that in our culture today. See, humility isn't thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. It's a blessed self-forgetfulness. See, a humble person isn't someone who's always telling you that they're a nobody, but it is someone who's contagiously content in Christ and incredibly interested in the well-being of others. I mean, think about this. If I, have, if I found my treasure in Christ, I don't have to be preoccupied with filling up the emptiness inside. I'm filled up. I want others to experience the same thing so I can think about you, be concerned about you, be interested in you, helping you to find your fullness in him. See, that's, that's humility. A humble person is too busy looking up at God's glory to look down on others or to feel smug about themselves. So that's why all these others turn on the hinge of humility. I mean, you're just captivated with the glory of God. You're looking into the face of God regularly through his word and prayer and having your hearts filled up with a sense of completeness and satisfaction. And then that takes us to meekness. Meekness is a humble, gentle attitude that maintains patience despite offenses and is untainted by vengefulness and malice. Um, once again, our Savior 
Jesus, 1 Peter 2.23, when Jesus was reviled, he did not revile in return. In fact, what's so crazy about this, what's amazing about this, is that while Jesus was hanging on the cross, he said to his father, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. That sounds like a great deal of understanding. He didn't take it personally. He was able to go, wait a minute, they, there's something broken inside of them. They're messed up. So God, please forgive them. It, it created this sense of understanding. First Corinthians 4.21, a spirit of gentleness is an expression of love. Proverbs 15.1, a gentle answer turns away wrath, a harsh word stirs up anger. Why would you be gentle with people? And it's because you, you, you're trying to understand that they must be really broken. Otherwise, they wouldn't be so hurtful and hateful. If they only knew the God that I know and their hearts were filled up, they wouldn't act like that. That's what's going on with someone that's meek, a humble, gentle attitude that maintains patience despite offenses and is untainted by vengefulness and malice. Proverbs 25, 15, listen to this. This... <laughs> This one forced me to have to think a little bit, like, what is that about? It says, a soft tongue will break a bone. A soft tongue will break a, soft tongue will break a bone. Paraphrase, gentle speech breaks down rigid defenses. So, I mean, haven't, haven't we all been more often moved to repentance by a gentle word than a harsh rebuke? I mean, my wife's really good at this. She's so gentle and kind and loving, and boy, it just it has melted my heart through the years. And, and, and that, that's what happens. And then there's patience, ability to suffer trouble in a relationship without blowing up or giving up. We keep loving and forgiving despite provocation. I love Matthew 18 because it really talks about conflict and relationships. And so Jesus is walking his disciples through relational conflict, you know, conflict resolution, skills, and then so Peter steps up once again, and he says, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me, and I forgive him? And before he gives Jesus an opportunity to answer, of course, Peter steps in there, wanting to sound really spiritual, and he takes, uh, the rabbis taught in those days, you got to forgive people at least three times. They taught three times. So Peter takes the three, doubles it, and then adds one for good measure, okay? And he says, how about seven? Sounding really spiritual. And Jesus says, how about seven times Seventy, In other words, unlimited. You need to live a lifestyle of forgiveness. Are you going to be one broken, messed up person? You need to learn forgiveness. That's what he's saying. And if you don't learn forgiveness, you're going to bring all that brokenness into every relationship you go into. That's the idea. And so what we need to understand is that true love forgives the most but condones the least. In other words, it, it is never loving to let someone sin against you. We're not talking about letting bullies get away with their bullying you around or being mean. or We're not talking about abuse where you just take abuse or whatever. You need to run. You need to get out of those environments. You need to draw good, healthy boundaries. And you need to do all of that. But this is what you need to know is that it only takes one to forgive there's only, it only takes one to offer forgiveness. That has to do with the past. Regardless of what the other person might do, might do or whatever, you can still forgive. You need to forgive. It only takes one to forgive. That has to do with the past. It takes two to reconcile. That has to do with the present. You can only take care of your side of the street. You've got to take care of your side of the street. You can't take care of their side of the street. If they refuse to own up, they say, hey, we're above reproach. We've done nothing wrong. There's nothing you can do about that. You can only take care of your side of the street. There can't be reconciliation unless both sides own up to their part in the relationship. You can't force that. 
You can offer that. And even if they do take care of their side of the street, it doesn't mean you still tr you, you begin to trust them right away. You don't enter back into the normal kind of relationship. So it only takes one to offer forgiveness, that's the past. It takes two to reconcile, that's the present. But it takes time and performance to show trustworthiness, that has to do with the future. Trust cannot be demanded, but must be earned over time based on performance. So anybody that comes and says, you have to trust me, no you don't. If they've violated that trust, they have to reestablish that over time based on their performance. That would be healthy. Unless there's something so broken in you that there's nothing they could do to ever reestablish trust. Then you've got to really kind of work on your own heart in, in working on that relationship. Look at verse 13. Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Now, Here's what's really important. The extent to which two people can bring up and resolve issues is a critical mark of healthiness in the relationship. Now here's what, where my, my wife ran into problems with me, is in the early days when she would bring up an issue, she's, she would say she had two issues. She always had two issues with me. The issue that she's trying to bring up and then my response to the issue that she was bringing up. Does that make sense? So, so she, had, she couldn't even deal with the issue. She had to come to me, first of all, and just say, i got to deal with how you respond to me when I bring up an issue. <laughs> and it wasn't funny then, but I, I'm laughing now. <laughs> I'm laughing now because I go, oh, yeah. And, and I was creating a very unsafe place for her because I, would, I could out-argue her. Remember, I'm, I was more of the controlling one, so I could out-talk her, out-argue her. I could make, it back, make her the bad person in the, in the situation. Well, if you just get your act together, we'd have a great marriage relationship. You know, all that nonsense. It was crazy. I was full of myself, very self-righteous and proud, and the Lord had to deal with that. But she, and he dealt with it through my wife, patiently confronting me and saying, I got to deal with your attitude and how you respond because I don't even feel safe to bring any issues to you. And it really broke my heart, and I began to realize, man, my wife doesn't even feel safe what a lug nut I am. She needs to be able to feel safe and be able to say anything, and I need to understand and hear her out and not try to fix her, because that was another issue. I'd try to fix the situation, fix her, and all that other nonsense. I just had to listen to her and love her and be part of, the, you know, part of that. It, it, was, it was hard for a guy because we all try to fix things and, and do all that. And so that's, that's health in a relationship. When either one of the people can bring up issues and you can work through a solution, that's just healthy. That's healthy. Now, here's the next one. Bearing with one another, here's my idiomatic phrase, cut each other a lot of slack because we don't know all that they have gone through or are currently going through. James 3, 2. We all stumble in many ways. 1 John 1, 8. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So uh, recently my wife said, because I was, kind of, I was getting down on some people and how they respond, and she goes, hey, wait, 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 you don't really know what they're going through. You don't know what's happening in their life. And she kind of brought this up, and I go, yeah, you're right. I, sh I need to be more understanding. I have no idea. I have no idea what's going on in their life. I need to be more patient and kind and more bearing with one another, and I wasn't. And she brought that to my attention. I appreciated that. If one has a complaint against another, that's your next fill in the blank, whether you are the offended or the offender, you are to have the hard conversation. Now, let me, let me just say that uh, love covers a multitude of sins. I'm glad that my wife doesn't bring up every issue, you know, between us. There's some things, love covers a multitude of sins, so you got to know, you know, which, which mountain to die on, okay? you got to know the difference between the, the minor things and the major things. 
And so you, when it's a major thing that's going to, it's divisive to the relationship, it's unhealthy, you need to, and whether you are the offended or the offender, you need to make the move. Whether you're the offended or the offender, you make the move towards them. Matthew 5, 23 through 26 talks about that, that if you go and give your offering to the altar, lay your offering on the altar, and there remember that someone has something against you, you leave it there, your offering, and you go and make that right. That's what he's saying in Matthew 5, 23 through 26. In Matthew 18, 15 through 17, this is what he says. If your brother has offended you, you go to him in private and talk to him, and you want to speak the truth in love, Ephesians 4, 15. The goal is to preserve love in the relationship. It's for the health of the relationship. And so you go and, and, and talk with him. And if you can't work it out, then you go and you get one or two others to go with you as mediators and as witnesses. If that doesn't work out, then you take it to the leadership in the church. You take it to the eldership. And that's the process that the Bible actually says. It's a healthy process. And so if one has a complaint against another, whether you are the offended or the offender, you are to have that hard conversation. So you don't fight and you don't flight. Those are the two wrong ways to respond to conflict, but you face the conflict. The Latin term for confrontation means to turn your face toward, to look at directly. And it's, it's all about to make the relationship better. Do not run from conflict issues. I see this happen. They get in conflict at one church, they run to the next church. Or they go to the next small group. No, no, no. Stay there. Roll up your sleeves. Get involved because it gives you opportunity for greater levels of intimacy and maturity, not only with God, but with others. And as my wife and I have worked through the conflict issues in our lives, oh my goodness, it's brought us closer to God and each other. And, and that's what God wants to do in our lives. Here's the next one, forgiving each other. It is a decision. Notice this. It is a decision. So it's, it's not based on your feelings. In a process, it may take some time to kind of work through this. The deeper the hurt, the longer it takes. So it's a decision and a process of canceling a debt, absorbing the cost, but notice this, and trusting that God will settle the score. Now, I have a real important question to ask you. What is the key to healing past relational wounds? What is the key to healing past relational wounds? It's forgiveness. If you do not learn forgiveness, you're not going to be healed up from past relational wounds. And the only way that you can do that is you've got to receive his forgiveness of you. In fact, part of the Lord's Prayer when he says, and forgive us of our trespasses as we forgive those that trespass against us, that's what you're doing. That's healing from, from relational wounds. He's teaching you, this. you want to be healed up? Receive his forgiveness then you can offer forgiveness to others. That's how it works. And in fact, the more we contemplate the tremendous debt God forgave us through the cross of Christ, the more we will find the grace, the more we will find the grace we need to forgive others. Here's what I've learned in my own life. Forgiven people, forgiven people vertically are forgiving people horizontally. If you're not forgiving this way, it's because you're not living in the reality of how much he's forgiven you. So you go back to his forgiveness of you and he fills your heart so then you can forgive others. Then 
verse 19, he says, and above all these put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony, love. Love is the overflow of joy in Christ that gladly helps others to be everything they were created to be. Our world has a crazy idea of love. You know, I fell in love, I fell out of love. It's like a feeling. You don't fall into love, okay? You don't do that. It doesn't happen. That you fall into lust, that's not love. Because that kind of love is all about you. You don't fall into love, you commit to it. Love is saying, I will be there no matter what. This definition right here is the overflow of joy in Christ that gladly helps others to be everything they were created to be. That's love. That's love. And so Christians are the most loved, forgiven, reconciled people in the world in Christ. Therefore, we should be the most loving, forgiving, reconciling people in this world. Okay, buckle your seatbelts because this is how we finish up. We're going to give you the last fill in the blanks. And what is the goal of healthy relationships? Harmony. Nothing better than harmony. My wife and I have some great harmony in our relationship. It'll be 45 years this year. We've had 45 years to work on this harmony, okay? And it's been a lot of work. But we got harmony. If it kills us, we're going to have harmony. (laughs) Verse 15. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Healing. This brings healing. We want healing in our relationships. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in wisdom. It tells us in Proverbs 12, 18, reckless words pierce like a sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. We want healing in our relationships. How about happiness? Verse 16b, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. Christians should be the happiest people on the planet. There should be a song in your heart from the delight of living in God's presence. So that should be bring happiness into our relationships. The last one is honor. Honor of God, honor of each other. Verse 17, and whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name or as a representative of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Next weekend, Harmony in the Home, we're going to talk about relationships, marriage relationships and parenting. And I'll be up front at the end of the service along with any uh, available elders. If you're new, I'd love to meet you. If you need prayer, I'd love to pray with you, particularly over this topic of past hurts from relational wounds. If if you're struggling there, can't help but think that there's a few folks here this morning that are struggling in that area. I'd love to pray with you about that. God can bring healing to your heart so you can offer forgiveness in that relationship. And if you'd like to commit your life to Christ this morning, I'd I'd love to bring you into the family of God. Love to pray with you about that. If you've got any questions about any of this, love to try to answer those for you. Let's pray. Would you bow your heads with me? So, Father God, help us to realize more than ever that the key to healthy relationships is individual wholeness, and individual wholeness is belonging to you, living our lives wholly for you and being deeply loved by you. And as we grow in finding our completeness, our wholeness, our holiness in you, Christ Jesus, may it heal us from past relational wounds, free us from mask wearing, and give us the supernatural ability to even love our enemies. Help us to be people with with compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, confronting one another with forgiveness and love, producing in our relationships harmony and healing and happiness and honor, all for your glory. In Jesus' beautiful name, and everyone said, Amen. amen. Love you guys. God bless you.